0: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for December 2nd, 2021. The Dobbs versus Jackson edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C., Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello Emily in New Haven.
1: Hey, I'm enjoying the fact that John Dickerson, who you were about to introduce, <laughs> maybe I'll introduce him. He works for CBS <laughs> News. He has a party hat on.
0: Oh, I was thinking he looks like he's in a penitentiary.
2: <laughs> right. It's like because those little stripes.
0: hats that people in penitentiary used to wear. Yeah, it's stripes yeah. and
2: Although and I also associate this with sort of chef's hat. It's a striped It's a it's a headband. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, that I was wearing on my head.
0: Um, We're a little bit giddy because we're going to be together in a room later today for the first time in forever. We're gathering in New York to do our conundrum show, but you'll hear that later. This week, we will talk about the most consequential abortion case in at least 20 years, probably in our lifetime, was argued this week at the Supreme Court. We will talk about that, and we'll have Ross Douthat of the New York Times as a guest to join us. Then the emergence of Omicron and the increasingly avoidable, maybe, or maybe increasingly less avoidable tragedy of the pandemic and the politics of the pandemic, which are just so awful at this moment. Then Chris Cuomo was suspended by CNN for his extensive efforts to protect his brother, former governor Andrew Cuomo, and his lying about those efforts. We will talk about, you know, when when do you protect your brother? Should a brother be protected? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. We are joined by GabFest regular New York Times columnist Ross Douthat, who wrote this week about why he opposes abortion. We're going to talk about the most important abortion case in decades, which was argued at the court on Wednesday. So Emily, can you talk about Dobbs versus Jackson? What was being argued? What's a reasonable summary of how the argument went? And then we'll get into it.
1: This case is about a challenge to a law that the state of Mississippi passed that nearly bans abortion after 15 weeks, with very few exceptions. What we heard an oral argument were the three liberal justices making the strongest case they could for respecting precedent. Justice Sotomayor, in particular, talked about the political stench that would surround the court if they are seen as just flipping on this because, um... Recent justices have more conservative views on abortion. The current law is you cannot ban abortion before a fetus is viable. There were deeply conservative justices who's made it clear that they think that Roe is egregious, a terrible precedent, a stain on the Constitution that should be overturned. Chief Justice Roberts was kind of all by himself and looking for some kind of middle ground. It seemed like he wanted the court to find that viability was no longer a strict line, that states could restrict abortion before viability. But it wasn't clear that anyone else was on board for whatever compromise he was after or what standard he would come up with. And then you had Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett. Justice Kavanaugh seemed to be in line with overturning Roe, or at least he compared it to other stigmatized decisions of the past, like Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, in which the court enshrined the principle of separate but equal. Of course, the court overturned that in Brown versus Board. And so It was as if Justice Kavanaugh was putting forward a kind of best hits list of overturning precedent and suggesting that Roe should join that list. And Justice Barrett surprised me the most. She asked why safe haven laws were not enough to kind of protect women's rights and autonomy. She was talking about laws that have made it slightly easier for women to give babies up for adoption. And she revisited this question of adoption a couple of times and seemed to be suggesting that as long as women didn't have to actually raise the children they would bear, that they didn't necessarily need a right to abortion. I have to say I found that pretty shocking.
0: Ross, which of the arguments as someone who's who's I I think I can say is more sympathetic to the the move to ban abortion or at least make it much more difficult, which of the arguments did you find effective or where did you where did you sense that the Conservative justices were were hearing something they liked?
3: I mean, well, first, I basically agree with Emily that out of the conservative justices, it was only Roberts um, with, I think, not surprisingly, an assist from Elena Kagan trying to sort of prod towards the question of whether there's a a standard besides viability, basically, that the the court could come down on. I think the challenge, and you could see this in Especially the solicitor general and and the the lawyer for the abortion clinic is that viability is an extremely workable standard in the sense that it's clear. It's, it's clear. I mean, there's there is ambiguity, obviously, like of exactly when a baby becomes viable in the womb. But you know, we can say for certain that a 12 week old fetus is not viable, and a 32 week old fetus is viable, right? So the the law likes clarity for understandable reasons the challenge is that philosophically in any version of you know arguments about abortion whether it's sort of pro the pro choice position or the pro life position or the various gradations in between viability isn't really a great place to draw a line because the you know the thing that makes the, the most important thing that makes a fetus viable outside the womb i believe is lung development and almost nobody thinks that you can found personhood on on the state of someone's lung development so if you take a sort of maximalist pro choice position that says basically the problem is the state is forcing women to be pregnant and stay pregnant if that's the interest, that doesn't disappear the moment the fetus's lungs hit a certain developmental milestone, right? And alternatively, you could say, you know, we're going to ground personhood in some kind of stage of brain development. But the most plausible candidates for drawing that line are much closer to 10 to 12 weeks, which, and it's a much, a much blurrier line than viability. So I, I think in that kind of argument, the conflict between the law's search for a clear line and the philosophical debates, the very different places that the philosophical debate comes down, you can see, honestly, the problem with having this be sort of legislated by judges, right? That the judges are being asked to do work that is functionally philosophical rather than constitutional. And Anthony Kennedy really enjoyed (laughs) that part of the Supreme Court job. But I don't think it would be surprising that conservative justices would have a hard time, even Roberts, sort of working their way to a place where they're saying, "Okay, we are going to reject this sort of legally clear but philosophically dubious line in favor of a philosophically clear but legally more complicated line. That just doesn't fit into the conservative perspective on what Supreme Court justices are supposed to be doing.
2: Is, is that why Kavanaugh was seeking to talk about precedent and compare it to Plessy and basically say, this was wrongly decided originally, there is no right to privacy in the 14th Amendment, and therefore we don't have to adjudicate all the questions you just mentioned, it shouldn't, shouldn't have been decided? Therefore we must get rid of
3: it and send it back to the States. Yeah. Well, I, I did I mean, I thought Kavanaugh though was also following picking up on the arguments that Breyer especially uh leaned into at the start, right? Like if the strongest case being made from the bench is not that Roe was rightly decided originally, which I suspect that Breyer himself doesn't quite believe. Uh, not that he wouldn't favor a right to abortion, but that I suspect he doesn't believe in the specific arguments that were made in Roe. But if you're not arguing that Roe is rightly decided from the beginning, if you're leaning all the way on stare decisis, then you just very quickly get into the question of Plessy versus Ferguson. Bowers versus Hardwick came up, right? These the instances where the court has clearly reversed itself. So you you end up talking about them sort of by necessity, I think, if the argument is on the grounds of, you know, when does stare decisis hold?
1: Bowers versus Hardwick is the decision about sodomy laws where the court first said that states could outlaw sodomy, even though it was pretty clearly discriminating against gay people, and then later reversed that decision. Um, So there are these philosophical versus legal questions about where you draw the line. I mean, do you think that the court should Draw the line earlier. Like, I think a lot of people who think access to abortion is important would be willing to have a line that was before viability if they thought it would settle the political dispute, right? I mean, this is something Will Salatan has written about for Slate for years, and I think you could imagine a position, and this is the way a lot of European countries work, where nominally there is an earlier line. So France and Germany nominally say that women have a right to abortion up until 12 weeks, but then there are lots of exceptions. And so, in fact, people who are delayed beyond that time period who need to get abortions for urgent reasons, they get abortions. And that is true in other countries in Europe, too, that there is a lot of access. There's also insurance that pays for abortion and birth control and just sort of a whole public health apparatus that supports all of this. But we don't have anything like that in the United States. And so the argument is, from the pro-choice side yesterday, and I understand it, is that to fully support women's autonomy, viability is important because that's the moment when a baby can live outside the womb on its own. Before the point of viability, the fetus is wholly dependent on the woman's body. And so that's the line we've come up with. And so I feel like there's this problem between a more potentially pragmatic solution and these absolutes that we talk ourselves into.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess on, on the second point, Yes, there is some change in the fetus-slash-baby's sort of potential capacities, obviously, at viability, but it's not as if the instant a fetus becomes viable, the pregnant woman who previously wanted the abortion is going to induce labor and put the baby in a NICU, right? Like, it's not... I mean, the the baby is still going to stay inside the unwilling... woman past viability. I, I guess I, I just, I don't, I understand the sort of intuitive argument that like it is, you know, this is the moment when it can live outside the woman, but it it doesn't actually live outside the woman. So it's still, I think from, again, from the sort of the pro-choice logic where forced pregnancy, this is forced pregnancy and it's wrong. I, I don't think it actually gets away from the problem. On, on the compromise question, I mean, I, I disagree a little bit about the landscape in Europe. I think it is actually in, not so much in the Netherlands and, and Scandinavia, but in France and Germany and Italy, it is reasonably difficult to get an abortion. Put it this way, there are impediments to getting an abortion after 10 to 12 weeks that I think, were they implemented in New York State tomorrow, most liberals would be up in arms about, right? So there, there are actual Impediments. you have to, you know, go through various processes. In, in Germany, women in France end up sometimes going to the Netherlands for late-term abortions. Um, so I don't, I don't think the European settlement is something that would be perfectly satisfactory to, the, to most of the pro-choice side. But
1: wait, but do you agree, though, that it's important that it's embedded in this public health system in which people have insurance, they have much more access to long-acting birth control, that there's this whole support for women's reproductive Rights and medicine and healthcare that changes the calculus, right? And we're not talking about putting that into place here before the court overrules. We're not putting,
3: yeah, we're not talking. There's a there's public funding for you can get an abortion and you know publicly funded in in France, for instance. Yeah, and that's not that's not going to happen in in the U.S. I mean, I I think the well, I I guess I'm curious what you think about this. Is the U.S. going to have a national settlement on abortion, right? If the court say the court strikes down Roe and returns the issue to the states. Obviously Congress can also legislate on abortion. There'll be a lot of pressure to do so. But could you imagine a like I, I do think that a basically a abortion is illegal after ten to twelve weeks and legal before that is Sort of the place of compromise that if you just used public opinion, you would end up with, and I think you can see that even in red states like Texas, these heart, the heartbeat bills are not absolute bans on abortion. But they're at more they, like
1: six weeks than ten or twelve. They're
3: at more six, right? But e, but what I'm saying is, even even in conservative states, you aren't. I mean, I'll be again. I'll be curious to see what happens, but you don't have attempts at the at the full ban. You still have some kind of gesture of compromise. But I can you imagine? Congress—like, the bills that Democrats want would just codify Roe v. Wade, right? Well, I, I just don't know whether you can imagine Congress legislating its way to compromise or whether you really do end up with a real patchwork of abortion laws nationally. Well,
2: can any Democrat vote for anything that is less than a codification of Roe in the Senate? And can any Republican, regardless of what the general public opinion is about abortion in the state— it's hard to believe that a, that a Republican senator would chance voting against the opinion of the primary voters, which will, which is more, which, which this will become partisanized in a way even that the Pew polling on 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 abortion doesn't really capture
0: at the moment. It seems I mean, hard to, for Collins. a Republican to vote. Yeah, there's no, but, yeah, but yeah, Emily, but there's, need no, 60 there's, no le, there's no yeah. yeah, there's legislative no legislative Yeah, there's no
1: legislative solution coming from Congress in any, like, time. Not in that the that next, can yeah. See, right? So, yes, I think there but will in, be even a network of world. states. Sorry, John, what?
2: Well, I was just going to say, in a po- even in a post-row world, you're not going right. to find 60 votes.
0: Can I, can, can I go back to a point of yours for a second, Emily, which is just a, the, the European comparison in this in this public health framework? One of the things that I find so frustrating with all of this is that there is uh there's so little work by the abortion opponents on these things which make it easier to have a child and for to to once you've had this child which is so difficult to have and which you maybe don't want to have that the same politically the party that is that is you know insisting that you this child is yours and you need to raise it, is doing such little work to make it easier to raise that child, of helping that child out of poverty, of making it easier for that the older child, the elder sibling of that child to have a decent life, for you for the mother of this child to be able to have a job and 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 be able to have know that there's affordable child care. And so I find it very frustrating when there's this push among some of the amicus briefs to talk about what how wonderful life is for women in America and how things have improved and this failure to acknowledge that as a nation, we are so poor at taking care of these children that everyone says they want to be born.
1: Yes. I mean, for me, this is just the fundamental, like deep frustration. And this is why I'm afraid that the Supreme Court decision is going to unleash just a lot of human suffering by people who are already born. And we know this, we have research about this, that women who are turned away from abortions have poor health five years later, they have poor economic outcomes, and their kids suffer too, don't do as well in school. There are all these knock-on effects. And there in some ways is something incredibly idealistic about the idea of restricting or ending abortion, right? It's the idea that you can expand this concept of humanity to include all of these unborn potential human lives and that we can treat them equally too. And there is something beautiful about that idea. It's just so far removed from our reality in which we don't provide decent conditions for living for all the people who are already here. And so I just have this terrible fear of what this is going to unleash for real people, especially poor women in the parts of the country where it is going to be very hard to get an abortion through the existing main route of going to clinics. And people are going to have children that they're not prepared to have, and that is going to lead to poor outcomes for the children they already have and for them. And and I, I find... The order is off, right? If we were going to fix those problems, if we were going to give people all the resources they need to raise their children the way they want to re- raise them, then you could countenance abortion restrictions, maybe. But we're not going to do it that way. And, you know, Mississippi, these Republican led states, are going to be the last in line for those kinds of changes.
3: So, a, a couple things. One is that you know, the weird thing about the history of the pro-life movement is that at its start, it was primarily a Catholic movement, and many of the people involved in it were associated with the Democratic Party, and were sort of, for that reason, very much in favor of a lot of the kind of, you know, welfare state expansions that you guys are talking about. And for a lot of complicated reasons having to do with shifting coalitions and the politics of the 1970s, the pro-life movement ended up Allied to the more libertarian political party, Republican Party, and allied to the evangelical movement, which became more pro life um, but remained for reasons that honestly go back to the Reformation, <laughs> more skeptical of of government power um, and that does create this this dynamic where you know I think if you looked if you just sort of pulled pro life activists, people who were deeply involved in the movement on their views on government spending on new mothers and things like that, they would look more liberal than maybe some liberals would expect. But they are part of a political coalition that has tended to oppose things like Medicaid expansions and so on. I sort of think some of that changes probably a little bit. In in fact, you can see versions of it changing already around the same time that Texas passed or implemented its six-week abortion ban. Um, The Republican governor of Texas signed a bipartisan bill expanding Medicaid for, for new mothers, keeping them on Medicaid longer, which I'm sure still does not go as far as sort of an ideal program would, but is a shift that I think in part reflects the shifting politics of abortion. And you have within the Republican Party a small group of legislators from Mitt Romney to Marco Rubio who are very interested in family policy in different ways. They don't set the agenda for the party, but they do exist. So I would be a little more hopeful that this sort of complex post-Roe world would generate, at least in some red states, some real experiments in family policy that would be good and positive. And I guess the other thing is, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, Emily, that there is a sort of utopian side to the pro-life movement that tends to be true of social reform movements in general, but, you know, the, I mean, the new mother who, who doesn't get, who considered an abortion and doesn't get an abortion is likely to be in more financial difficulties five years later, I'm sure that that's true. The child who's not doing that well in school uh, is, you know, is alive and would be dead otherwise. No, I think Emily's no, saying the I was older brother. About the older brother, the older sibling. Okay. So the younger sibling, who would presumably also not be doing as well as in school, is alive and rather than dead. And it's just hard from the pro life perspective to say that that interest has to wait until the perfection of the American welfare state. I would like to close by
0: offering each of our two uh, our two panelists here. Uh, John and I are out of it. Uh, given what you heard at the Supreme Court, I would like each of you to say what you think is the sort of best possible outcome for your—given
3: Given what you hope to happen would be from this case. Ross, why don't you go first? Emily, you can have the last word. I mean, I'm more interested in Emily. It's mine is—I I do think Roe and Casey were wrongly decided, and I think— you know, I think there's a lot of room for plausible democratic compromise on abortion, but I think it needs to be democratic. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I would, I think the the proper outcome is still ultimately overturning Rowan and Casey. Um, I'm honestly and curious. And therefore what, the states, and then it goes to a bunch of the states and the states decide, each state decides. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think we need, for some of the reasons that, our, came up in our, our last exchange. I think ultimately you probably would want a national settlement on abortion, given the nationalization of our politics. But I think we don't know enough about what different approaches to a more pro-life policy look like. And so I would be perfectly content to have things legislated in the States um, for a while. Um, and I'm I'm really curious what Emily thinks the ideal... sort of more liberal form of abortion jurisprudence should be.
1: Well, before I answer that, so can states ban abortion? Can they have heartbeat bills? And can they also ban telemedicine so that you can't seek abortion from other states that have more liberal rules?
3: You mean in this case, I don't I don't know what I don't know what the implications of this ruling for that. Well,
1: in your but in your ideal jurisprudence, like what would states be allowed to do? What would you want states to do? If you were setting state policy, how would you set it?
3: If I were setting state policy, I would be very cautious initially about trying to do things like telemedicine bans. I mean, I think I, I said this in the Times piece, but I think that the... You know the the strength of the pro-choice argument lies in its stress on the idea that you don't want that there's a certain kind of a, abortion regulation that requires a kind of police state approach, like where you're scrutinizing suspicious miscarriages and things like that. Um, and I am against that. Uh, I'm not sure where like I'm not sure where telemedicine kind of things fall in that in that territory um. But I think my my initial goal would be for states to be able to, you know, not, not have abortion clinics within state limits.
1: So there are 19 states that now have telemedicine bans, and Texas at least is banning mailing the abortion pill into the state. So that's the legislative right. so reality. So
3: that would be there, yep.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, my answer to this question is that I wish I could think of a way that women could be free and equal in the world and not have a robust right to abortion. Because abortion is so divisive, but I just can't see it. I don't see how you force people to be pregnant and they can be free and equal in our society. And that I agree with Justice Ginsburg should have been the basis for Roe all along. And for me, it makes a lot of sense that access to abortion is a constitutional right for those reasons. Whether there could be some kind of pragmatic compromise more along the lines of what some European countries do, where states are allowed to give more interest to the rights of the fetus, you know, during the second trimester. And that would be a way of settling the terrible political fights we've had over this. And there would be exceptions for women, but they would have to go get permission from doctors or panels at hospitals. Like, If I thought that was a political settlement, I would be willing to move in that direction, especially if it came with things like public health funding for abortion, which is present in those European countries and seems just so crucial to me, along with access to long-acting contraception and good sex ed, because those are the reliable ways in which we reduce the number of abortions if that is the goal, which it seems like should be a shared goal. So I guess that's the world that I wished we live in. It's some combination of our constitutional right and some kind of pragmatic solution that recognizes the politics. But I fear that we are going to take steps away from that kind of reality, and we are going to have this polarized country in which – We still have abortion up until viability in blue states, like where I live, and women in red states are going to be out of luck. And it is a big country. So asking people to travel to clinics is a huge ask. And the hope that I have in this lies in the abortion pills, which have increasing research showing how safe and effective they are. And what I fear, Ross, is the kind of police state that you were just talking about, in which women are going to be ordering those pills over the mail And if states are serious about stopping them, they are going to be opening the mail and putting those women in jail. That's where this ends, if you really want to ban abortion. And that I find really, really disturbing.
0: Ross Douthat is a columnist at The New York Times. Emily Bazelon is a writer at The New York Times. You should subscribe to The New York Times, apparently, (laughs) So you get this amazing content. I've heard good things about Slate, though, too. Ross, thank you. Absolutely. Slate Plus members, you get so much good stuff from being a Slate Plus member. As those of you who are members know, it's just a dollar for the first month and a very reasonable price for the rest of the year. And you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn, and you support the work we do here on the GabFest. And of course, you get a bonus segment from us every week, which is some of the funnest stuff that we get to do. And this week's bonus segment is going to be the GabFest Gift Guide what we love and want to share, the best things that we've seen that, that we think uh, maybe your loved ones would like. So go to slate.com slash GapFest plus to become a member today. This episode of the Gabfest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? I could swear, as a Robert Ludlum book I read as a teenager, is jittering the world. The new variant appears to have qualities that might, might, might make it very infectious and that might, might, might make it resistant to current vaccines. Might, maybe, might, maybe. And it arrives at a really bad moment because the fight at the pandemic has descended to a new low here in the U.S. with Trump-appointed judges blocking Biden vaccine mandates, and red states now effectively campaigning, leaders of red states effectively campaigning, even paying people not to get vaccinated. So, Emily, let's start with you. How scared of a micron are you, personally?
1: Personally, not that scared, because I'm pretty healthy and I'm pretty good at denialism about COVID and many other things, but... I am scared about the impact it's going to have on um, opening back up on the economy, on my kids in terms of what they can do in the world, and on other people who have many more health risks and could get – it seems like the question is particularly whether Omicron is as or more infectious as Delta – and then whether it's more virulent. And we just have no idea. But the fact that it's spike proteins are so different from the other strains of coronavirus suggests that it might be less affected by the vaccine. And that is just an incredibly depressing prospect that we're going to go back to not having the kind of immunity that we've had in the last at least several months, at least some people in the world.
0: So, John, you're really great at thinking and talking about uncertainty. And this is a moment of deep uncertainty around this virus. We will know a lot more, presumably next week, and more even than the week after that, and so on. But uh, time is time is both friend and enemy here, because it also means it has more time to insinuate itself, and uh, more time for people to panic, or more time for people to work themselves up into a froth of some sort. Yeah. Do you think, at this moment, there is a such a thing as a correct policy response or even a correct personal response? Like, how are we supposed to deal with this uncertainty?
2: I think there is a correct policy and personal response. Unfortunately, not everybody is embracing it. And the reason we know it's a correct one is because we've been testing this for a while, which is hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Now, that doesn't mean shut everything down. Nobody's suggesting that. But one thing we've learned in... The, all of the big, so there have been seven named variants. There have been lots and lots and lots of variants, but Omicron, which I also uh, understand can be pronounced, I think in England or or in Europe, as Omicron, and that that's okay to do. So just don't correct anybody if you hear them say them that way. But it's we've we've recognized that when you see the tip of ice out of the water, that it might mean that there is an iceberg under there. So let's not steer the ship into the into that little piece of iceberg that's showing. And as Emily said, we've got to wait probably a couple of weeks. The Omicron is worrying everybody for scientific reasons that it's gotten over 27 of um, the spike protein uh, mutations and Delta had only 10. So it attacks our three big questions. Does it break through vaccines? Is it more um, contagious? And does it make you sicker? All of those questions are up in the air. And so... What we've learned is when you see when that the virus is always ahead of us, and so when you see a little bit of it, be concerned that there's a huge galloping amount of virus out there we have to worry about. And then if you're wrong, great, you know, you, we can go back, and, um, and so that should be the way people are reacting. The problem is that we're seeing overreaction, and then, of course, we're seeing— ridiculous things said by people who are uh, anti-mask and anti-vaccination, which creates this awful thing, which is in these two weeks we're waiting to find out what the real deal is, the conversation in the absence of data sinks to its worst level.
0: Emily, one possible case to be made about this this variant is that this represents a deep failure of the world, that the world... Should know, we knew, the, the, the epidemiologists knew, that the more we get vaccines out into the world, the less likely it is that the, vex- the virus is spreading wildly all over the world, because there's just less place for it to spread, more people are vaccinated, and thus less likelihood of mutations that, that make this an ever deadlier or more infectious disease. And there has been a really lackluster effort to get viruses to the rest of the world. Vaccines. Vaccines, excuse me. There's been a really <laughs> very lusty effort to get viruses to the rest of the world. The virus is doing a great job. But there's been a very lackluster effort to get vaccines to the rest of the world. And is that is that on our head?
1: Yes, although I think it's also important to recognize that South Africa just turned away a whole bunch of extra doses and some of the other South African countries where um, Omicron was first detected have also just had a real problem with uptake. They are having the same problems of misinformation and vaccine skepticism that we are having. And so I'm reluctant to turn this into the sort of um, simple vaccine hoarding rich countries versus screwed over poor countries, though I think there is... That is potentially part of the story. And the other thing is, we don't actually know where it originated yet, for sure. We know that it was first detected, but that may just be that the South African doctors were especially vigilant about sequencing. And so I feel like this whole part of the story, while I very much rue the way in which we have not evenly distributed vaccines, I'm not exactly sure it's going to line up neatly as the kind of um, easy morality tale.
2: That's exactly right. Based on everything I've read is that it's not a shortage of vaccines, it's a shortage of vaccinations, which is in Africa, in part, the result of generations of abuse and, um, and disinformation by authorities with respect to medical treatments and or the withholding of medical treatments with respect to AIDS. And there was reporting, I think, Thursday that the in the Netherlands, they found two cases of, of Omicron before the South African plains on which they thought it came had even landed. So that's what suggests that it may not necessarily come from Africa, which nevertheless, part of this is a reminder that, and it's extraordinary that we have to remind people of this, but I guess with 45 million Americans unvaccinated, it has to keep happening, but that there are consequences to not getting vaccinated that go beyond your own body. If, if it's not enough to convince you within your own community that it, that other people can get sick, there is a warning that has been since the beginning, which is the more of this virus that bounces around the world, and particularly in places where people have low immunity, one of the theories is that one person had COVID and had an immunosuppressed body, and that it basically hung out in their body getting more and more of these mutant spike proteins So that, in other words, Africa, which has a low uptake, is a place where not only do these mutations happen, but they can become
0: more complex like uh, this one. So this particular scare comes at a time when here in the U.S. we have really terrible pandemic politics, that there is this now complete out-and-out culture war, or I guess it's a public health war, it's a culture war manifesting as a public health war, where... Most of the apparatus of the Republican Party in a lot of states is oriented against stopping mandates for vaccines, stopping mandates for masking and judges who have now blocked Biden's vaccine mandates in different ways. It's a very, very bad situation. And to me, one of the weird things is that people are rooting against their own self-interest in a way that you have a group of Americans who want the economy to be worse, who want people to be sicker, who are happy enough for the vaccine to be a failure because it it scores political points. And I think, and I will say that I think there was an element of that 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 Democrats practiced during 2020, which is that they were gleeful that Trump's mishandled the pandemic so badly uh, because it made it more likely he would be politically defeated. But the idea that people in this country in general are putting their own health, and their own economic well-being behind the sort of psychic benefit of their political party doing well is so incredibly depressing, I can't even get my head around it.
1: So I'm sure that strain is there, but I also, I'm not sure how prevalent I think it is. I think there's also just this sense of restiveness and impatience with the restrictions and this feeling, you know, all along, I think the hardest part vaccines of is
0: are a- not impa- Vaccines are not restrictions.
1: I- you're right. Totally. I agree. And I find the most puzzling part of this, like, to me, the vaccines are like the ticket to freedom. Like, if we all had them, then we could just march on together. So I find that very hard to I, – I, I understand the reasons for skepticism and distrust, but in the end, I find it very difficult. That said, I think the impatience and the restiveness is this sense of, like, don't tell me what to do. This pandemic has been exaggerated from the beginning. I don't share this view, so I want to separate myself from it. But I think all along, the pandemic, it's serious enough that it has killed many, many people. And as a society, we've had to respond to it with fairly drastic measures. But it is not killing a huge percentage of people who get the virus. And so if you want to say, like, this is just like the flu, don't worry about it. Depending on the age group you're in, especially post lots of people being vaccinated that may even be true and i think there has always been this difficulty of having a prolonged emergency response given the like if it had been 10 times more serious that would have been absolutely terrible in terms of human suffering but it would have been i think more clarifying and more unifying politically so i think that is part of it just this sense that people are sick of the restrictions they don't want to hear about this anymore and I also don't un- I find the not getting vaccinated part of the reaction to be inexplicable, but it's all tied up in some sense of like too much, too much more than just scoring political. Like, I'm sure there are people who are scoring political points, but I think most people are not taking it in through that lens.
2: I think you, the rest of this you, you describe is certainly exists, but I, I think you do, you do have members of Congress and parts of the conservative—and uh, polit- I don't even—conservative isn't the right word. We need to sort of—parts of the partisan media um, establishment making the claim, and this goes beyond restiveness, making the claim that Omicron is a confection of the Democratic Party. And yes, this,
1: I guess. The political class is doing that. Yes.
2: Yeah. And so this is—and I know this is bait. I know they're doing it because they're baiting the press and they're baiting— Democrats. But I think it's worth addressing for two reasons. One, this is a public health matter. And if we're going to have an endemic situation, the clarity of information is David's first question, the ability of us to notice, okay, something might be coming. Let's prepare because we know if by the time it hits us and it's in our lap, it's too late. So getting this right and, and responding to these strains is really important because we're going to have to do it a lot. And the other reason to think talk about this is that this act of arguing that Omicron was created by the DNC, as one person on Fox said, is such an act of ignorance. It achieves a kind of sublime stupidity, that it is so stupid that it achieves a kind of perfection. And this is why it is dangerously stupid. First of all, politically, the idea is loony. The protracted nature of COVID is what's hurting Democrats politically. So if anything, the political motivation would be for Democrats to pretend that this doesn't exist. You may remember what happens when a a political party and its leader pretend a virus doesn't exist, so we know why they don't want to do that. But politically, this idea that this is a confection of the Democrats doesn't make any sense. Second, the time between the initial discovery and nearly universal worldwide reaction to it, which is to say doctors all over the world saw this and were worried about it for the same reason, was nearly instantaneous. So uh, experts across the world, this isn't just some hack in Cook County coming up with some idea that's out there that this is going to help them politically again it doesn't help them politically and so it's just so frustrating that it's used it's not just that restiveness it's that it's being used in this obviously stupid and ignorant way which only creates worse conditions and we're going to have to keep dealing with these kinds of variants and it only makes us dumber as a culture yeah
0: i want to i want to close well by posing something to you guys first of all i, wa- I do want to say emily i think i think your point about restiveness is dead on except i i think that really applies to mass schools i think the idea that it's been conflated to include vaccines is is a particularly pernicious and wicked thing that's been done by people for mostly fairly st- either ignorant or malevolent reasons and i don't i i am a hundred percent with the people who are like I'm tired of wearing a mask. I'm tired of my kid not going to school. I'm tired of not being able to you know, do this and that. I get that. But the, the idea that those same people are like, well, and also, I don't think people should have to have vaccines, which are the root out, is, is a different matter. But that's not the point. I, I want to connect this to our previous discussion, which is that there is some kind of sick irony of people talking about this narrow sense of liberty that they have this narrow idea of liberty liberty is to freedom to be able to do whatever you want with your own body and in this case also your child's body by refusing to get your child vaccinated forbid you know you 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 choose to not give them vaccine and cause yourself harm society harm and your child harm and it stands so starkly against the insistence by almost the same people, when it comes to abortion, that you can't do what you want with your own body, when it comes to reproductive rights, or with this this, this child that, that they say is there, that you can't harm that child. There, like the right to harm your child exists in one place. The right to harm this this embryo, which people who are uh, anti-abortion believe is a child, uh, does not exist in this other place. And it's just it's a it's an example of the kind of the hypocrisies that we all live with all the time.
2: Is, is one of the answers to that, David, connected to what Emily was saying earlier, which is that the way those who would like to restrict abortion rights see it is that millions of, of babies have been killed as a result of abortion. Uh, COVID-19 is not virulent enough, as Emily was saying, to uh, suggest you're going to have millions of deaths. Uh, with if your kids aren't vaccinated or if you're not vaccinated. So the stakes aren't as high in those two instances.
0: Well, except for the
1: kids, you have to What about the old people, though. That's a problem. There
0: right? are 800,000 dead in America oh, and there are millions of dead. And they're, so they're wrong. They're, it's a matter of they're they're literally. Well, how many people
2: have how many abortions have there been more than 800,000 in the history of abortion?
1: About probably about 800,000. We're at about 800,000 a year.
2: Right. So and how about in the history of abortion?
1: Oh, I mean tens of millions yeah. in the united. States. So
2: that's why I think they would see tens of millions as being more than 800,000.
1: Right, which of course though requires equival- making an equivalency between a born child and a potential human being.
2: But they see but obviously just since, to be clear, but, but yes, no, we're for but, sure, but we're John, speaking yes, in yes. voice. That David's David's question yes, is yes. is asked in voice. So if you if you assume their position, this is how they would see they w- how they wouldn't see an inconsistency. Well,
0: but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess then you, but these, these same people are now standing up against mandates for measles, mumps, rubella, uh, diseases which have collectively killed way, 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 way more people than abortion has. And also, I would note that COVID doesn't just kill people in the United States. It kills people all over the world. Anyway, it's, we've combined two topics here. Chris Cuomo, brother of sexually harassing, ousted New York governor Andrew Cuomo, was suspended indefinitely this week by CNN when new documents gathered as part of the investigation of Cuomo now released showed how deeply involved he was in helping his brother try to suppress and play down harassment allegations and possibly discredit the people making those allegations. Cuomo, Chris Cuomo, excuse me, had lied publicly and also lied apparently to his bosses at CNN when he said he had not consulted with aides to the governor, he hadn't used his own journalistic connections to dig up dirt on accusers and various other matters. So what can a brother do in this position? What should a brother do? Should, what should Chris Cuomo have done? I mean, I, I do think it's like when you add up the, 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 the sum of his behavior, it's, it's grotesque, and he probably should lose his perch at CNN. But you obviously also don't expect him to... He should not be the chief investigator of his brother, What should he do?
1: I feel like this is really simple. If he wanted to help his brother, he should have resigned his position. He absolutely should not come back and be a host on CNN. And he lied. He lied to his bosses and he lied on the air. He said he had not tried to attack any of the women who were accusing Cuomo. Not true. He said he had not called other members of the press to try to chase down the stories they were writing. Not true. This is simple. If you want to help your brother, go get off the television screen. Stop pretending to be a neutral anchor with any kind of journalistic integrity, and go do that. That's the choice.
2: Well, Does hold on. he pretend so, to be a neutral anchor? That was so well go said. Ahead, we need to just that Emily is exactly <laughs> right. We stop the exactly. Segment? I think we just <laughs> stop the topic. I mean, just it was so good. I hesitate to even talk, but I just I
0: so I. <laughs> I see here's uh, then I'll then I get into an argument where where you guys can just crush me which is I don't I, I think what he did about with his brother was totally wrong and he should lose his job sure I agree with that but I am not with the people who say he should never have talked about his brother or done you know had his brother on during covid or lionized his brother his Yeah biases but there's a slope
1: there like I, so you should explain Can what you're I finish my about. sentence Remind listeners of what you speak
0: Can I finish can I finish the sentence I started? I guess so. Yeah. Yes. So during finish. COVID, sorry, Chris Cuomo had his brother Andrew, then the governor, on to talk about New York's response to COVID. Which Andrew Cuomo then came on and and was a very effective uh, communicator. Apparently, he did not tell the truth particularly uh, uh, effusively when he was on. He certainly. Was not as good a responder to COVID as he made himself out to seem, and they the two of them bantered, and it was very it was ratings mana for CNN, and also the sense that oh yes we're seeing here's we're seeing how a, a politician can respond well, and I think that's just totally fine. I thought that was fine. It's not if if he were the if CNN uh, and the CNN shows were the New York Times or the Associated Press, it would not be fine. Basically, it's a it's a news network. that's also an entertainment network. And the thing that I want to make clear is that the biases that Chris Cuomo has are very evident when it comes to his brother. And so if he's talking to his brother on the air or talking about his brother on the air, it is a million percent clear he is in the tank for his brother and that whatever he is saying, you should take with a huge grain of salt. And it is, whereas I think where the danger is for somebody like Chris Cuomo or anyone is like all the biases that listeners are not even aware of and don't know about they don't know that you're close friends with this person you're talking about whereas with his brother it's like everyone knows it's his brother so of course he's going to have this now the problem to me with what he did related to the harassment is that it was all done in secret behind the scenes and that he lied about it but the fact that he talks to his brother and that he hypes his brother on the air seems a-okay to me
2: well a couple of things we're now on very different Territory and turf we're we're in the sins of of Chris Cuomo. We are in Sin number four or five or six. So but just to keep everybody focused Emily is dead on with the the first claim Nobody was forcing Chris Cuomo to go on the air His love for his brother is wonderful and admirable and I would do anything for my brother Uh, but I would either You know resign or take a leave or whatever or having been caught Um, I would say, okay, I did this for my brother, I broke the rules, and goodbye to me. The reason this is such a problem is that I think what you say, David, is um, defensible about having his brother on the air, but then what what CNN does in doing that is it blurs the lines between, hey, what's an entertainment, Um, he's not a real journalist, he's an advocate for his brother, and isn't this fun? And then the next minute, he is... Um, the voice of truth calling out the people because he is the maintainer of the bright, clear standards. The only difference between a real news organization and all the other crap we have that's called the media is that if you don't follow the standards and don't stick to the rules, you get fired. And so when everybody is saying, oh, the media, you know, what often happens in media criticism is they take the farthest, most distant thing that can be claimed a part of the media that has no standards at all, take something they do and says the media did this and the pushback is no it didn't that was some random thing off on the side when you talk about the press there are a set of standards that you can get fired if you don't maintain and if you don't do that you no longer are a news organization and that isn't just a problem for cnn it's a problem for all of us and one of the central questions of our time is the the dissolution of standards in politics and everything else. And there's a clear standard here that has been, uh, that has been crossed, not only the lying on the air, but the lying to uh, the lying to bosses. But, but I mean, yes. Wait,
1: I, I now can I say something? I mean, I agree that these are lesser sins, but I think looking back, they, it looks worse in a way that was kind of predictable. So I don't at all agree that CNN is not held to the same standards as the AP or the New York times. Like, I don't get that, like, because it's television. They define themselves as a news organization. And so I think that John is right about the kind of um, stench that they create, to borrow a word that Justice Sotomayor used effectively this week, for the rest of us. And I also think the problem – I agree with you, David. I'd much rather have the biases out in the open. The problem was the airtime that Andrew Cuomo got that other governors did not get. And if you think about how ineffective his response to coronavirus proved to be in retrospect, the idea that he was the one who got to seem like the entertaining but also like, you know, I've got your back, governor, for many more minutes on national television than anyone else seems like especially – bad <laughs> like it wasn't even an accurate portrayal and it pumped up someone who was like not requiring accurate reporting from nursing homes and putting people at risk in these ways that we could not see at the time so i don't give them a free pass on that yeah,
0: I guess i, right, I guess it's well right so cnn i so cnn knows when you hire chris, but cnn hires chris cuomo because they know that chris cuomo brings access to democratic elites and brings a particular access to his brother, who was then the governor. I mean, of
1: come the- on, all of the access to democratic elites is like hardly a difficult thing to come by on television. I don't see them like refusing to go on. And also the idea that, you know, they hired Chris Cuomo so that like he could do funny interviews with Andrew Cuomo. Like if that's true, that's a really bad reason to hire someone as a news anchor.
0: I don't think that's why they would have hired him. I also me, me think, either. I also think that, silly. that, 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 CNN. I don't watch CNN. I have never, to my knowledge, I have never watched Chris Cuomo on the air. So honestly, I don't know what his show is like, and I don't know whether it's masquerading as a straight news show or something else. I just don't. I, I my in my own head, it's like, oh, it's sort of like Chris Hayes or Rachel Maddow. It's like that, and so that's a different. That is a different genre of show than than the old Bernard Shaw, which is probably the last time I watched CNN is when Bernard Shaw was on and whatever the news the news shows that they had then. And, and I guess my view is that news organizations are complicated and they do, they do some, some of what they do. And this is true of your own beloved New York times and presumably your own beloved CBS, John is some of what they do is really straight news. And a lot of what they do is like personal fluffier, like, you know, more informed by, by your own human experience and allows, allows that into the coverage and not everything that, that the New York times does. Like holds to an absolute standard of you know of that that the news story on a one has but, like there's lots of stuff in the magazine, personal essays, sure. like like op eds, right. which are just but, are not held to that same standard. And but, so I don't see why Chris Cuomo couldn't be that for CNN. Well, but I don't because again, but, not watching it, I don't know.
2: Well, because uh, what you're saying is essentially on the media diet plate, you can have a little you know lovely little gumdrop on the side. This is making the gumdrop the central part of the meal. What are two of the biggest three of the biggest issues we face right now? The first is COVID nineteen, and as Emily suggests, and I think rightly, my only point was that it's number five in in the immediate set of issues facing him. But at the time, the New York response to COVID nineteen was a was a big deal, and by having these chatty conversations on the air, it gives outsized volume and power to the chattiness of, and and uh, the kind of affirmation of what he's doing when there were tougher questions to be asked. So in the central question of the time there is that imbalance on covid. Then the other is workplace sexual harassment by people in power. One of the other great stories of our time. Also punted on that. This is not some thing you allow on the other side of the plate, central question. Other is the dissolution of standards in our world, where basically Donald Trump can say, come in and say, you know, these standards you want to hold me to, they don't matter because nobody keeps the standards. When it comes a question between keeping the standards and making a profit, all these people who are criticizing me in the media and saying I'm not living up to a standard, guess what they do when the rubber meets the road? They screw the standards and they keep the money. So don't hold me to these bullshit standards because they don't do it themselves. Three of the most major issues of the day, central meat at the center of the plate, all totally undermined, corroded, and corrupted by this. That was great. That was great.
1: That was totally great. (laughs) And the idea that CNN, which holds itself out as a reputable news organization, has given Fox and other outlets and, you know, former President Trump clips in which Chris Cuomo is outright lying to his audience, like... 100% lying. That is like, uh, bad. That is just clearly (laughs) bad for, you know, any kind of efforts to show that there is a distinction between media organizations that, yes, are flawed, yes, have different kinds of rules for different sections of the newspaper or whatever, but do correct mistakes and do not lie outright to their audience. Like, that is a big problem that that happened.
2: And I would just, one other thing is there are the slippages that we all make as part of being human and for which we should all be, um, you know, generous and forgiving in our interpretations. This was this continued long after and was done. The, this is a, this is much more, uh, an act of repeated commission rather than, um, a momentary slip up.
0: Yes. I, I, and just to be clear for the record, I do not in any sense defend what he did around his brother's sexual harassment. Um, that was great. You guys were, that was so good. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad that I was there you for you guys to Give us the fish to, to pound shoot on. in a barrel yeah. and we'll shoot the fish. <laughs> 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 Let us go to cocktail, chatter uh when you are sitting with your disgraced sibling. Oh, neither of you has a disgraced sibling. none of us has a disgraced sibling, but if you were if you if you had a disgraced sibling you were having a drink with them, what would you chatter about to them to cheer them up? Emily
1: I want to recommend an episode of On the Media from December first. Brooke Gladstone, the host of on the Media, did. I thought a great episode about Hanukkah. It's called A Different Hanukkah Story. They started with some clips of Jon Stewart, including one where he's talking to Stephen Colbert. And Jon Stewart is just very good at bemoaning the deficiencies of various Jewish holidays in a very, I find, sweet uh, and poignant way. And mostly this segment consists of an interview with Rabbi Jim Panette, who is my rabbi, a rabbi, a who I've known for many years. And Jim talks about how the... Origin story of Hanukkah is really about a civil war among Jews. That is not how it has come down to us in the slightest. We think of it as being about this miracle of the oil burning for 8 nights instead of 1 and then also a defeat of the Assyrians led by King Antiochus. But in fact, there was this real internecine struggle going on among Jews at the time, which lasted for decades and ended poorly. And Jim wrote a piece for Slate years ago about this civil war aspect of Hanukkah. Um, and I loved hearing him talk about it and make it really relevant to various challenges around the world today. So I really recommend this episode of On the Media. It's called A Different Hanukkah Story. And thank you to my sister Dana for um, telling me about it.
0: Isn't it the case, and Emily I've forgotten this. I remember I used to know this history that that in the Civil War, I was definitely on the side of the Hellenes. I was definitely not on the side of the Maccabees, that the people who won are the kind of anti-modern, anti-technology, anti. anti
1: The people who won were the zealots and the assimilationists lost. Yes. Yeah. At the time in fairness, they were being asked to really just like entirely give up being Jewish in a way that we are not. So maybe you would have um, not actually been down for that. But I don't know. I wouldn't have been down for that.
0: Um, well, we find ourselves on the sides of the Gavest Jewish Civil War. Once again, <laughs> John, what is your chatter?
2: Uh, I have a double double chatter. One is that I'm just getting my get uh, wading into an essay in the Harper's called "The Third Force on Stupidity and Transcended" by Garrett. I think it's Kaiser, and it's about the unstoppable force of stupidity and ignorance in in its various different forms and how it's different today than the way we might have thought of it before and what we have to th- how we have to think about it. So I'm I'm not done with it yet, but I think it looks intriguing and and I'm very much. um in favor of articles or things these days that I may not agree with, but that it, that, that it excites a lot of fermentation and thinking in, um, in myself. So it looks like it's the, in that category. The other thing is the news you can use. And this is not in the nature of a complaint. I think one of our duties in the time of COVID is to, is to stow a lot of our complaints at the challenges that happen. And obviously, airline industry has been severely challenged, and they're now going to be even more so by Omicron. Um, however some long ago made airline plans. This has now happened to me several times. The airlines will change your, your reservation and they will change it in a number of ways. One, they will book you a new plane on a new day. Two, they will book you a plane that was leaving at nine to leave at 5 a.m. Um, three, as it happened in my case, they will take a direct flight and turn it into a four-stop golly um, in which you fly basically all over the country to get to your destination. And my point here is, It's not that they do this, which is inconvenient, but it's that they don't exactly... You would think if they're going to make you get up at at four o'clock in the morning and make you fly through three other airports, they would send you a note with some sense of alarm. And basically, it'll just slip into your email. It might even go to your spam folder. So if you've got holiday travel plans, just check and make sure they are what you think they are, because there's a chance they may not be. And then you can try to rectify the situation, which just to set your expectations at the right level. may not be so easy and may require a couple of days on the phone on hold just check your spam folder and your and your reservations and make sure before you do your holiday travel that um everything's the way you think it
0: should be my chatter is about this amazing set of notes that was entered into evidence in the elizabeth holmes trial i don't know if you guys saw oh my god
1: i'm so glad you're talking about about the boyfriend
0: (laughs) Yeah, so no, so it's oh, two, I thought
1: the schedule. Well, it's the schedule,
0: and then these. So, so Elizabeth Holmes is on trial. And one of her defenses in the Theranos fraud case is that she was under the thumb of her boyfriend, a guy named Sonny Balwani, and entered into evidence. I suppose it must have been by the Holmes folks, maybe by the prosecutors. Is a schedule that Holmes made for herself, which also included a set of directives for her own behavior. That she claims Balwani gave to her, they were balwani's instructions for how she should behave. The schedule is like her getting up at four and you know to rise and thank God most things are not logical, and then she has meditation, then she has working out, and then she has change, shower, shave, perfect that 's from five twenty to six twenty in the morning, but the part that 's just so sad and weird are these instructions to herself which again she says are balwani's instructions to her i do everything i say word for word i am never a minute late i show no excitement calm direct pointed non-emotional i am not impulsive i do not react i know the outcome of every encounter i do not hesitate i constantly make decisions and change them as needed i give immediate feedback non-emotionally I speak rarely when I do, crisp and concise. My hands are always in my pockets or gesturing. I am fully present. I don't know. I mean, I just, it's just sad. They're just sad. Just, they're sad if she wrote them for herself. They're even sadder if she's following the instructions of someone who's got, got her in, in his thrall. And they're written. They're handwritten. These are clearly things that she was internalizing by writing them to herself. But wow. Disturbing.
2: If your hands aren't in your pocket or otherwise gesturing, what are you doing with them? Are you, like, eating bread? But you, but oh, yeah. Biting just, your
1: fingernails? Yeah. yeah. Just
2: like, oh, there you go. You know. Got it. Okay. Hey, Emily, may I ask you a question from a legal standpoint, which is, can has this kind of a defense ever been successful um, The in the thrall of defense?
1: Abused women who commit violence yes. have succeeded, right? But this is different than that. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't know, in the history of time, maybe someone has succeeded with this. It seems difficult for a fully informed adult to be claiming so little uh, personal responsibility and agency.
0: I think the idea, I haven't been following this, but my guess is, just as someone who understands a tiny bit about corporate governance, is they both held positions in the company. And if the allegation is there's a corporate fraud and she's saying he's actually making the decisions in the company, therefore... He is responsible for these fraudulent decisions that have been made, not not I, even though I am the CEO. Yeah, um, Right, but, I'm not but it's sure
1: shading it's, into, like, he had control over me, abusive boyfriend, yeah. like, right? It's, it's Svengali, yes. like Yes.
0: Listeners, lots of great chatters from you this week. Please keep them coming by tweeting them to us at at SlateGabFest or emailing them to us. Some of you don't have Twitter accounts. Lucky you. Lucky, lucky you email them to us at Gabfest gabfest.slate.com and something that you're chattering about, a work of culture, a historical episode. And our listener chatter this week comes from Chuck Peel.
4: Hi, GabFest listeners. I'm Chuck Peel from Mankato, Minnesota. My listener chatter comes from an editorial in the Mankato Free Press, our regional newspaper in southern Minnesota. As a historian, I've found valuable sources using selective freedom of information requests but now school districts in our state are being overwhelmed with spurious and politically motivated public records requests from right-wing activist groups. These require broad computer word searches of hundreds of thousands of documents, looking for dozens of hot-button keywords and phrases, including anti-racism, whiteness, and even the title of a Howard Zinn book. Such harassing tactics require countless hours of staff and computer time with the clear goal of intimidating educators. But these tactics also make a mockery of legitimate, targeted information requests from the press, advocacy groups, and scholars who know the value of truly open records.
1: Good point. Abusing Freedom of Information Act, really bad idea.
0: That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researchers, Bridget Dunlap, Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio, June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Audio, and Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there or email us chatter at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. hello slate plus how are you it's uh black friday dirty thursday woeful wednesday and saturday sanctimonious saturday whatever it is uh, but it's a day and it's gab fest thursday i guess is what it is so we are going to do our gab fest gift guide what is it that we think that you should be getting for your loved ones uh go anyone go? i've got a i got a list but go you go go okay um Need a great book, a food book, Gastro Obscura. I know it's self-interested here, but this it's a guide to the world's food wonders. It's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing book. It is like, I, I recommended the Atlas Obscura book a few years ago. I know a lot of you bought it, the Gastro Obscura book. Same, same, beautiful, fascinating, endless hours of delight. Frame some family photos. Frame photos for somebody. John Can Dickerson.
2: I d- jump on that? I, um, frame, yes, but also no. Um, the... So what I always worry about when you give a frame is it's like, ah, do you like the frame? Where's it going to go? But I, what I've found interesting recently is the pictures you can get printed on, um, like, box. Um, so it's not in a frame, but it's in a sturdy kind of um, box material. That way you can either put it on a desk, you can put it on a wall. Um, it has more versatility to it. So I'm, but I'm with you in the general idea.
0: Okay. But give somebody some, – nobody, nobody doesn't want to have a photo of a loved one around. Uh, a smartphone holder for a bike.
1: Oh, that is a good idea. So you
0: don't like there are people like me who occasionally will like be looking at directions on my mm. as I'm biking. That's not. It is not <laughs> safe. It's unsafe. I here's one very modern one. Lots of people like do, you know don't have a subscription to a streaming platform where there's a show they really want to watch. Get someone a subscription yes. to a streaming platform like you know or get them if they have the subscription and there's an ad free one get them the ad free version so they don't have ads on hulu or something it's it's just like people like streaming watching stuff on streaming and they sometimes they don't have hbo max or paramount plus or whatever it is well, or, 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 or slate plus, plus for that matter yeah <laughs> sure or sure. slate
2: plus this is all very good I, I really like the idea of the of the the streaming service gift because sometimes it's a low sort of cost, low barrier thing. And sometimes people are like, what do I need this streaming service for? And then once you've given it to them, they think, oh my God, look at all this stuff I can watch and do. Yeah. The other thing I like that has been successful, but you have to tell the people you're sending them to that you're doing it, is um, subscription little food items. So like a tea a month or a coffee a month or an olive oil a month, or I believe we gave my brother um, a butter a month uh trying to butter
0: him up oh i saw that i almost got that for someone this year here's the thing
2: he didn't know we gave it to him so he was (laughs) so he was just
0: being and you know doesn't he live in atlanta too it's like a million degrees
2: (laughs) when you get random food items arriving you know it's worth being a little skeptical so um i don't know what they did with the butter maybe they've got just a freezer full of butter and now they can unleash the lipids um
0: GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.
4: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at Chappacasino.com.